Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. After weeks of warning by the West, Russia has invaded Ukraine, prompting what many fear could turn into the continent's most traumatic conflict since the Second World War. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. Putin's aggression against Ukraine will end up costing Russia dearly, economically and strategically. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. But in this week's episode, we're being devoted to the Ukraine war, which was described by US President Joe Biden at the top. We'll be analysing why Russia invaded, the situation on the ground as of Friday, the backlash in Ukraine and also Russia, and how the coming weeks are expected to pan out. Max Seddon, our Moscow bureau chief, joins us down the line, along with the FT's Europe editor Ben Hall, who's in the studio with me. And later, we'll dive into the international response to Russia's invasion, what military support it is offering through NATO, and whether the sanctions, particularly those from the UK, go far enough, and what sort of impact the war might have here back at home. Political editor George Parker and political and diplomatic correspondent Laura Hughes will analyse. It's been a dark week for Europe. Russia has amassed armies and military equipment on the border with Ukraine for some time, but Western powers had hoped it would not follow through with a full-scale invasion. From the US to France to the UK, leaders had hoped that President Vladimir Putin could be dissuaded and diplomacy would win out. But it was not to be. Troops entered Ukraine under his orders on Monday, and a full-scale invasion commenced on Thursday. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, summed up the international mood with a final but failed plea. President Putin, in the name of humanity, bring your troops back to Russia. In the name of humanity, do not allow to start in Europe what could be the worst war since the beginning of the century. Well, Ben Hall, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Can you begin just by giving us a bit of the background about how we've got to this moment, both in the last year or so, but also maybe going a little bit further back to 2014? Well, Vladimir Putin has uh, an obsession, a fixation about Ukraine, and uh, that has been apparent for a, a very long time but was laid bare in angry terms when he gave his war speech to the the Russian people uh, on Monday night this week. But he also laid it out there in an essay, long, long essay last July. And essentially, uh, Putin feels that Ukraine is not a real state. It's a historical anomaly, a historical fiction, and that uh, Russia can't be secure without uh, exerting full influence or control over Ukraine, but is also not somehow whole without Ukraine, its brother Slavic nation. So, and this obviously has been a very apparent for a long, long time that uh, he wanted Ukraine in Russia's sphere of influence. And when the Ukrainians pushed back first with the 
Orange Revolution and then with the Maidan Revolution in 2014, he decided that he had to exert influence over the country first, annexing the Crimean Peninsula and then stirring up this separatist war in the Donbass region. And I think over the last year or two, he has concluded that that has not given him the influence and control that he needs. And this has led to a full-blown invasion and the biggest uh, military offensive in Europe since the, the Battle of Berlin in the Second World War, which many people struggle to understand. Well, Max Eden, thank you very much for joining us on what is obviously a very busy day. What brought Vladimir Putin to this exact moment to do this now? Well, I think ultimately what is really driving Putin the most is he's thinking about his his legacy and his place in history. Because if you look at the one thing that Western intelligence didn't really get right, they predicted with uh, quite eerie accuracy what Russia's battlefield plans were going to be. They were quite consistent in tracking how the preparations for the invasion were going to go. But where they were a bit wrong was they said that Putin would use a uh, false flag attack or a fake terrorist attack or something like that to to say that Russia or Russians in the, the disputed parts of eastern Ukraine, where he recognized two separatist territories, they were under attack from Ukraine. And there there were a few incidents like this with uh, pretty pretty baseless claims. But what was really, I think, telling was that in Putin's speech on Monday, th- th- this was kind of an afterthought. He spent pretty much all the time, both on Monday and then the actual declaration of war on Thursday, talking about his uh, two main areas of historical grievance. It's uh, his obsession with and resentment of NATO and uh, the U.S. because he sees that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, one of the really great traumatic event in his life, the way he thinks it uh, is, is that through expanding NATO and uh, this sort of end of history triumphalism after the Cold War, mm-hmm. the U.S. humiliated Russia. And he feels like he's restoring Russia's rightful place by restoring its, its sphere of influence. And he also talked about Ukraine, which he has an increasingly irrational obsession with. What unites Ukraine and NATO in his mind is that if you go back to really the key moment in uh, Putin's break with the West, where it all really began it was about 2003, 2004. You had the war in Iraq. You had uh, Putin's first really major moves to crack down on opposition domestically. And at the same time, you had the first wave of uh, Western-backed color revolutions in countries like Georgia and Ukraine. And you had NATO expansion. And this all became mixed in his head. And uh, he began to interpret these things as as a threat to his own power. And that was very clear from what he said in the speech, that somehow Ukraine was, in its current form, was not just an affront to Russia, but a threat to Russia. And uh, he said that he summoned the oligarchs yesterday for a meeting in the Kremlin to discuss how they respond to Western sanctions. And uh, his justification to them for, for why he, he, he did it, he said that he felt he had to do it because, uh, this is a quote, otherwise the country would cease to exist. And the country he's talking about uh, ceasing to exist is is Russia, not Ukraine. And instead, he decided that it had to be, it was either them or us. So Ben, that speech that he gave, which Max was talking about, the tone was quite extraordinary. As he said, he essentially said, Ukraine is a non-country and talked about the denazification of it. It's a total false reality from what's actually going on there. And I think many people who've watched the news coverage of the events this week have found themselves, their heads sort of spinning at this because it just doesn't match with what's actually going on there. How sustainable is that? You know, at some point, how is Russia going to connect with what Putin is saying to what the reality is in Ukraine. 
Clearly, he has fabricated this idea that the Ukrainian government led by Volodymyr Zelensky is a illegitimate government. Zelensky's predecessor was stalled in 2014 on the back of a, what he calls a fascist coup. And this is about delegitimizing the Ukrainian leadership and therefore somehow legitimizing in the eyes of the Russian people this enormous, brutal military offensive. The idea that Zelensky himself, you know, a Jewish Russian-speaking entertainer with no previous political experience is somehow a kind of Nazi is, is laughable. I suppose the issue is not so much the propaganda value in that, but whether Putin himself is actually duping himself about how easy it is going to be to somehow topple Zelensky and reclaim control of Kiev and the whole of Ukraine. And so the idea that this is just going to be a quick fix and he's going to be able to bring back Viktor Yanukovych, the president who was ousted in 2014, or install some other minor pro-Russian figure just seems so far-fetched. Well, Max, let's look. We're recording this on Friday morning, and of course the situation is incredibly fast-moving at the moment. But how has the invasion sort of played out over the first couple of days that the reports have suggested that it's not been maybe as quite straightforward Russia has thought and they've encountered significant resistance. But at the time we're recording this, the Russian forces are on the cusp of reaching Kiev. And obviously, if that falls, then that is a significant moment for the rest of the country. How does the reality that compare to what maybe people in the Kremlin were expecting? Well, I think it's uh, it's very difficult to tell because the information from the Russian side is so distorted. And the way that Russia is framing this is that they are doing a special operation to liberate the part of the Donbass from Ukrainian aggression, whereas actually what they're doing is a large-scale invasion of the whole country. And Russia has not acknowledged uh, any casualties. It's claimed that Ukrainian troops are uh, laying down their arms en masse and refusing to fight. And it doesn't seem they found it quite as, as easy going. You know, the, the Ukrainians, and, uh, and I think they've been backed up by the UK on this, at least to a certain extent, they say they've managed to inflict several hundred casualties on Russian forces. They've taken out some fighter planes. The real issue for, for, for Russia is that the, the cognitive dissonance in, in what they're saying is, is just so huge. You're, you're, they're framing this as a uh, mm. liberation mission. And at the same time, they are using tactics that we know from Syria. And there's a real risk that especially this becomes a, a prolonged conflict, depending on how long the Ukrainians are able to, to hold out, that this uh, could start resembling Syria. And uh, it would mean there would have to be sustained assaults on Ukrainian cities. You're talking enormous civilian casualties Obviously, that would uh, harden uh, Ukrainian resentment of Russia, which is already enormous for understandable reasons. That would make it even more difficult for Russia to hold the territory. And the longer that they would try to hold the territory, the more problems that they would risk it at home. Because uh, it raises the question, if these are our brotherly people, why are we killing them? And why are our own boys coming back in body bags from this mission? The Ukrainian army uh, have uh, captured some, some uh, Russian soldiers. And according to the Ukrainians, some of these Russians uh, were not even told that they were invading Ukraine. They were just sent out on what they thought were drills. And then suddenly they realized that they were attacking Ukraine. Now, well, how does this play out, Ben, essentially? Because as I said, all eyes on Kiev at the moment. And there's a general view, I think, that the Ukrainian forces can stall but not hold out forever against the might of the Russian military. And we know that, as we'll talk about later in the podcast, the West is trying to support Ukraine through NATO, but those are not significant forces at the moment. So 
What does the sort of, say, next week of this conflict look like to you? What's remarkable in a way is that the Russian invasion is proceeding according to to plan and according to what Western intelligence officials and uh, well-versed analysts thought would happen, you know, an invasion from three points and direction Kiev with a view to encircling the capital at the very least and forcing Zelensky out and then installing a new government. I think the big question, as Max said, will be whether or not the Russians feel they have to go into the cities and actually fight in the cities, not just Kiev, but Kharkiv in the north uh, east, where there has been some of the most ferocious fighting so far, but mostly on the outskirts of the city. So a lot will depend on that Russian willingness to take what will be quite heavy casualties. The Ukrainians are putting up resistance, but By all reports, the Russians are now funneling in even more troops and armor. And I suspect eventually it will be very hard for the Ukrainians to fight on a broader front. So the question will be, to what extent will they go into Kiev and actually try to remove Zelensky's government and his administration through force rather than waiting on the outskirts and trying to force him, uh, intimidating him basically to, to, to flee the country. But that is their ultimate aim is to remove Zelensky and then install, that still remains in your view, their ultimate aim of what they're doing here to put a puppet regime in essentially. Yes, I, I mean, I think that is their uh, ultimate aim, but quite how they think they can do that without a very, very large occupying force, as if they think somehow the Ukrainian police or interior ministry is going to fall into line and follow Russian orders. There are millions of Ukrainians who are prepared to fight and who have guns. Many will sadly die if it comes to it, but they are preparing to resist. And finally, Max, as well as I'd love your thoughts on how you see it panning out, but one of the most striking things has been the protests in Russia about this, and obviously where protest at such matters is obviously a dangerous thing and can be very and lead to very grave consequences. But judging by your reports and by social media, there seems to be a significant body of opinion in Moscow that this does not have as much widespread support maybe as President Putin would have felt. This is obviously going to stir up a lot of anger against the Ukrainian people towards Russia. Before the invasion, you certainly seem to see that the Russian government's messaging on Ukraine was was working because most people weren't really paying attention to it. The idea that Russia could do something like this, you know, even, even after everything that happened in, in Crimea and the Donbass in 2014, is just completely unthinkable to the vast majority of Russians, not just ordinary people, but even in the uh, analyst community, even officials you know, that, I, that I speak to, with uh, literally only about one or two uh, exceptions, uh, basically no one thought that this was possible. So if you look at what sociology that there is telling us about public attitudes, the Independent Levada Center had two polls, one that came out in December, the other one came out on Thursday, the day the invasion began, which uh, said that the majority, 50 to 60% of Russians, they they believed the uh, state TV messaging on this. They blamed the West or Ukraine for the tensions. Only three or 4% blamed Russia. But uh, just as importantly, if not more so, about half or more of Russians weren't following the issue because people are worried about inflation. They're worried about pocketbook issues. They're worried about how they're going to put food on the table. And the issue is selling this as some sort of um, defensive uh, counterattacking liberation operation in uh, one area of eastern Ukraine is one thing. Selling it 
as uh, we are liberating uh, our brotherly peoples by turning their their cities into Aleppo is is another. And uh, I think it's quite telling that you uh, had the uh, Russian media censor put out a statement saying that they would fine or or block any any media that quoted sources on on the the conflict that weren't Russian official sources. There was this really Orwellian line that they had, only official Russian sources have the correct and accurate information. Max and Ben, thank you very much. The invasion of Ukraine has led to a prompt response from Western countries who anticipated this was coming, and many leaders had said they'd been working on packages of sanctions for some time. Now, those sanctions were announced in several lumps, first on Monday and then more on Thursday. And some have been criticised for not being strong enough, particularly those by the UK. But the words and rhetoric from leaders have been pretty blunt. Speaking in the House of Commons this week, Boris Johnson had some tough words about the motivations of Vladimir Putin. Putin will stand condemned in the eyes of the world and of history. He will never be able to cleanse the blood of Ukraine from his hands. And although the UK and our allies tried every avenue for diplomacy until the final hour, I'm driven to conclude that Putin was always determined to attack his neighbour, no matter what we did. Now we see him for what he is, a blood-stained aggressor who believes in imperial conquest. Laura Hughes, welcome back to the pod. Let's begin with the overall international response. And before we get on to sanctions, it's clear that obviously there is no real appetite from other Western nations for putting troops on the ground, which would obviously prompt a full-on conflict with Russia there. And instead, the focus has all been on NATO and supplying equipment and training, which is something the UK and the US have been doing for some weeks. Yes. And significantly, because Ukraine is not a member of NATO, there is no obligation for any of its members to put troops physically on the ground. That's obviously at the heart of this whole row and that Ukraine's desire to join NATO is a large part of why Putin is doing what he's doing. There have been a, a series of sort of sanctions announced this week. I think the most significant moment has to be Germany's decision to really harden their stance and cut off approval for Nord Stream 2. And this is really significant because for a long time, Germany hasn't gone anywhere near this. And it's been a real thorn in the relationship between America and Germany in particular. Nord Stream 2 is seen by the West as part of a a Kremlin plot to try and increase Europe's dependency on Russian energy exports. And Germany has been wrapped up in all of this and been cast as an accomplice. So their decision to stop approval is is absolutely massive. And then, of course, we've seen lots of sanctions being announced. The UK has, has launched a sort of asset freeze on lots of major banks, including VTB. We've had more oligarchs sanctioned. And really, there, there has been a huge ratcheting up in the course of a week in response to what Putin's done. But Putin clearly knew that this was coming and and it hasn't stopped him. So there are questions as to how effective those are going to be. 
Well, George Parker, this question, the effectiveness of sanctions has really dominated Westminster this week because the UK has been one of those Western powers that has been very clear on that said that Putin had decided to invade Ukraine and nearly all of those intelligence warnings were proven correct. But when the first tranche of sanctions were announced on Monday when he sent troops into eastern Ukraine, there was a bit of a shrug, I think, that said, well, hang on a minute, these are just a handful of oligarchs, not particularly prominent ones, and sanctioning just one bank that increased throughout the week. But ultimately, Russia doesn't really seem deterred by it. So no matter how strong the sanctions are, and even if they are getting more aggressive, it's probably not going to stop him or change the situation on the ground there. Yeah, I think what Boris Johnson called the first barrage of sanctions was a really ill-judged move by Boris Johnson. It was clear at that point that the invasion was underway. Um, Sergeant Javid, the health secretary, has said the invasion of Ukraine has started. And yet on that day, the government announced sanctions on a handful of oligarchs and five smallish banks. And everyone thought, hang on, that seems like a very strangely underpowered response. I think one think tank called it a pea shooter in a gunfight, um, considering what was going on on the ground. And David Lammy, the Labour shadow foreign secretary, said he thought this could even have encouraged Putin to go further. I think, to be honest, and you said this in your question, Seb, whatever the West had done in advance of the invasion of Ukraine, and no matter what sanctions have been levelled in the first wave of sanctions, it wouldn't have stopped Putin carrying out a plan which was clearly long in the in the planning stage, and it was, he was determined to press ahead with it. And as Laura said, as the week went on, the Western sanctions were sharply ramped up. Some would say not quite far enough, of course, but um, I think in the end, sanctions were never going to stop Putin doing what he's just done. Now, Laura, the the debate seems to have centred on this question of the SWIFT banking system. And as the FT reported this week, Boris Johnson was keen to um, exclude Russia from that, which would have very significant consequences for all countries, not just Russia. And it also seems that the US wants to do that as well. A statement from President Joe Biden suggested he was keen to exclude Russia from SWIFT. But it appears there have been some pushback from European nations on that. Yeah, this is really interesting. And I think this has to be the biggest split we've seen emerge this week between NATO members and the action that they take. So I think there's a general consensus from a lot of analysts that ejecting Russia from this international payment system would be the most severe sanction you could impose because it, it effectively would sort of stop the country's ability to trade outside of its own borders. It's interesting, but not surprising, that the UK has been closely aligned with America. We also think that the Canadians back removing Russia from SWIFT. But they have faced opposition from members of the EU who think it's too far and and are worried about the consequences for them. I mean, this sort of takes us, I think, to to another point on sanctions as well, which is there is the growing realisation, I think, that any sanctions that the UK and other countries impose on Russia are going to have consequences back at home for all of us. And that's why there is this little bit of tension, I think, over what happens. And Boris Johnson, we know from George's excellent reporting, has been really keen to push this. We had lots of politicians in the UK calling for it, but it basically doesn't work unless everybody agrees to do it. Because with sanctions like this, if half of the countries impose something and the other half don't, then Russia can just decide to trade with someone else. And that, of course, is the big risk looming over all of this. If the West cuts off Russia, will it just turn to China and and make these sanctions sort of meaningless? 
Now, George, obviously, there is this is going to have a consequence at home. And the biggest focus obviously been on energy prices. And it was Keir Starmer, the, the opposition, who warned of this in the House of Commons during the debate on the invasion this week. We will face economic pain as we free Europe from dependence on Russian gas and oil and clean our institutions from money stolen from the Russian people. But the British public have always been willing to make sacrifice to defend democracy on our continent. And we will again. So when you look at that, George, first of all, we should also note that this is quite a different approach from the Labour Party. And it's been cited by many people this week, had Jeremy Corbyn still be leader, it might not have been as full square behind the government as it was on these sanctions and supporting Ukraine the way that it has been. But it doesn't feel to me as if Boris Johnson has really done enough to prepare the fact that energy prices could go up even higher, that price cap could increase in October if Russia, as has been happening and will continue to happen, restricts gas supplies into Europe. Well, on the Labour point, first of all, absolutely certainly if Jeremy Corbyn was running the Labour Party or indeed had Jeremy Corbyn won the last general election, the British response to this would have been totally different. It's notable that there are around a dozen Labour MPs plus Jeremy Corbyn, who's currently suspended from the Labour Party, signed a a letter by the Stop the War campaign, which basically said that NATO had been sabre-rattling and poking the Russian bear and basically shifting the blame for this onto the West. Most of them have taken their names off that uh, letter now. But plainly, you know, it would have been a different approach. And I think it was interesting that Keir Starmer this week was actually saying that Boris Johnson needed to go much further. So again, sort of trying to toughen up Labour's sort of, um, national security defence credentials in, in the middle of this crisis. But in terms of the energy prices, yes, look, I mean, even before this crisis erupted, we'd seen the energy price cap rising from about £1,300 to almost £2,000. And even before the crisis, there was speculation that that price, the gas energy price cap could go up to £2,400 in October. Now, this, of course, could make things even worse, not just in in terms of gas, but also in fuel prices as well, the petrol pumps, which um, we expect to see that feed through as well. So yes, there will be pain for consumers. And as you say, Boris Johnson, I don't think really has quite prepared the British public for that possibly for understandable reasons, because it's going to be a very, very bumpy few months for the government as people start to feel the pain in their in their monthly bills. Laura, well, as this conflict is continues, what else is left in the locker to be done that we've seen further actions beyond those sanctions, including the decision of UEFA to strip it of the Champions League final, which moved from St. Petersburg to Paris. You've also seen the ban of air flights in the UK, which has then seen Russia ban UK flights from going to the whole country there. But ultimately, there's only so much you can do. And as you pointed out with the SWIFT debate earlier, there is a limit to how much economic pain the West is willing to take on this. It felt really quite depressing, actually, this week, because there is unity across the House of Commons and in Cabinet that this is a genuinely terrifying and horrendous situation. And there is an acceptance that whatever we do is potentially not going to bring this conflict to an end and that we are in many ways powerless to stop it. What we will see is is definitely a ramping up of measures to crack down on dirty money flowing through London. I think there's enormous political pressure on the government to do that, to make sure that Putin's allies are not able to camp out in our capital city and keep their assets safe there. So I think we'll see a lot of that. There'll be 
potentially much more talk about humanitarian aid for those fleeing Ukraine, more military support, training, weapons, that sort of thing, but not troops on the ground. So NATO being strengthened, which is counter to what Putin would want to happen, but is seemingly inevitable because there does seem to be a lot more unity there. It's going to be really hard. And I think that whilst there have been huge diplomatic efforts. And in some ways, this sort of is reminiscent of the Cold War. And I think the focus at the moment is trying to really try and convince European countries that freezing them out of SWIFT is the the, the biggest thing that we can do right now. And finally, George, I know this might seem a minor point, but obviously Boris Johnson himself in the UK has been in a kind of dicey political position, not just over the cost of living crisis, but the old Partygate scandal as well. It was alighted on, I think, by Tim Shipman in the Sunday Times that this Ukraine crisis could not have come at a better political time for the Prime Minister. And there's no doubt that when he was dreaming up his about being World King and being Prime Minister, these are the kind of moments he was thinking of when he was bestriding the international stage and interacting with these big events. And there is no doubt it has given him something of a reprieve at home. Yeah, well, it's important not to trivialise uh, what's going on in Eastern Europe, of course. And, uh, but, of course. Um, but, you, but you're right that you know, from a crudely national political point of view, of course, it's come at a very good time for Boris Johnson. He likes to imagine himself as a sort of Chilean figure. He's described this as being the biggest conflict in Europe correctly since the Second World War. And generally, he's handled it pretty well. And if you think back a couple of weeks, that moment where we were expecting Sue Gray's report to come out on the Partygate affair, there was a real head of steam building up to it. You felt that Boris Johnson's position was in real danger. Then the police intervened. That bought him some time, weeks of time, as it turns out, which is incredibly valuable in a political crisis like that. And now we have an international emergency. And while, of course, many people listening to this podcast will still be furious with the way Boris Johnson handled the COVID lockdowns and the parties in 10 Downing Street and all the rest of it. Equally, you can sort of see, well, that there's a bigger thing going on here. And that's something that Boris Johnson will cling on to. One of the things just to, to mention, actually, Seb, that was all the slips under the notice of most people is that um, Rishi Sunak, it's been confirmed this week, has also been handed a police questionnaire about attendance at parties. And that's something else which could help Boris Johnson, because if Rishi Sunak, his principal challenger for the leadership, if he were to be faced with a leadership challenge from the Tory party, if the Chancellor himself receives a fixed penalty notice. And again, that takes pressure off Boris Johnson too. So, you know, on a purely very narrow UK political point of view, it's not been a bad week for Boris Johnson. Well, George and Laura, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you'd like to receive the podcast every week, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels and have episodes as soon as they're released. You can also leave us a nice review and a positive rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next week, thanks for joining us. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.